Madam Excellency, there's no better way to commence these conversations at the Rasna Dialogue than to have you here to deliver tonight's inaugural address. I recall welcoming you to the ORF in 2015 as a Minister of Defense then of the Federal Republic of Germany. And today it gives me even greater pleasure to have you as a Chief of the European Union. Madam, the floor is yours. Prime Minister Modi, Excellencies, Ambassadors, distinguished guests. Every five years, when Indians are casting their vote in parliamentary elections, the world watches with admiration as the world's largest democracy charts its future path. Because the outcome of decisions made by 1.3 billion people resonates around the globe. This is especially true for Europe. As vibrant democracies, India and the European Union share fundamental values and common interests. Together, we believe in each country's right to determine its own destiny. Together, we believe in the rule of law and fundamental rights. And together, we believe that it is democracy that best delivers for citizens. So despite our geographic distance and despite the different languages we speak, when we look at each other, we do not meet as strangers but as close friends. Democracy was born more than 2,000 years ago in Europe, but today its largest home is India. For the European Union strengthening and energizing, its partnership with India is a priority in this upcoming decade. Both our economies thrive in a world of common rules and fair competition. And we share the same interests in safe trading routes, in seamless supply chains, and in a free and open Indo-Pacific. Both our regions are driving forces in the digital revolution. And this makes us natural partners in setting global standards to make sure that the rules of the analog world also count in the digital domain. And of course, both India and the European Union are key in the transition to a more sustainable and green future for our planet. So we must pool our strength in the fight against climate change. It's so urgent. And this is our common responsibility not only towards the global community, but mostly towards the next generation. However, our values are not shared by everyone. We all see the rising challenges to our open and free societies. This is true for the technological and the economic domain. But it is also true for security. 
The reality is that the core principles that underpin peace and security across the world are at stake in Asia as well as in Europe. The images coming from Russia's attack on Ukraine have shocked and are shocking the whole world. Two weeks ago, I visited Butsha, the suburb of Kiev, which was devastated by Russian troops as they withdrew from the north of Ukraine. I saw with my own eyes the bodies lined up on the ground. I saw the mass graves. I listened to survivors of atrocious crimes the Kremlin soldiers committed. I saw the scars of bombed schools and resident houses and hospitals. These are severe violations of international law, targeting and killing innocent civilians, redrawing borders by force, subjugating the will of a free people. This goes against core principles enshrined in the UN Charter. In Europe, we see Russia's aggression as a direct threat to our security. We will make sure that the unprovoked and unjustified aggression against Ukraine will be a strategic failure. This is why we are doing all we can to help Ukraine fight for its freedom. This is why we immediately imposed massive, sharp and effective sanctions. Sanctions are never a standalone solution. They are embedded in a broader strategy that has diplomatic and security elements. And this is why we have designed the sanctions in a way to sustain them over a longer period of time, because this gives us leverage to achieve a diplomatic solution that will bring lasting peace. And we urge all members of the international community to support our efforts for lasting peace. And if we consider what it means for Europe and Asia, that Russia and China have forged a seemingly unrestrained pact. They have declared that the friendship between them has no limits, that there are no forbidden areas of cooperation. This was in February this year. And then the invasion of Ukraine followed. What can we expect from the new international relations that both have called for? Ladies and gentlemen, this is a defining moment. Our decisions in these days will shape decades to come. Our response to Russia's aggression today will decide the future of both the international system and the global economy. Will heinous devastation win or humanity prevail?
Will the right of might dominate or the rule of law? Will there be constant conflict and struggle or a future of common prosperity and lasting peace? What happens in Ukraine will have an impact on the Indo-Pacific region. It already has. Countries battered by two years of COVID pandemic must deal now with rising prices for grain, energy, and fertilizers as a direct result of Putin's war of choice. Thus, the outcome of the war will not only determine the future of Europe, but also deeply affect the Indo-Pacific region and the rest of the world. For the Indo-Pacific region, it is as important as for Europe that borders are respected and that spheres of influence are rejected. We want a positive vision for a peaceful and prosperous Indo-Pacific region. The region is home to half of the world's population and 60% of the global GDP. Our vision is that the Indo-Pacific region remains free and open and becomes more interconnected, prosperous, secure and resilient. With an open and rules-based security architecture that serves all interests. To this end, we will deepen our engagement with our partners in the region, including ASEAN. On China, we will continue to encourage Beijing to play its part in a peaceful and thriving Indo-Pacific region. The relationship between the European Union and China is simultaneously strategically important and challenging. All at once, China is a negotiating partner, an economic competitor, and a systemic rival. We will continue our multifaceted engagement. We will continue to cooperate on tackling common challenges. And we will protect our essential interests and promote our values. And on this foundation of engagement in the Indo-Pacific region, we seek to build a new common agenda for the 21st century. One major item on this agenda is the need around the world for massive investment to overcome the fallout of the COVID pandemic and to modernize their economies. And as a consequence, some countries have been forced to take unsustainable offers. They face a situation where they do not fully control their own infrastructure, be it seaports or airports, be it bridges or railways. But investments in our future should never come at the expense of a country's independence. Throughout the 2020s, developing Asian countries 
will need to invest more than 5% of their gross domestic product to meet the infrastructure needs of their own fast-growing economies. This means globally over $1.7 trillion per year. The needs are massive, but so are the opportunities. This is why we have introduced Global Gateway. Global Gateway is Europe's vision for investment in clean and sustainable global infrastructure. Global Gateway will enable up to 300 billion euros to support major infrastructure priorities around the world, from clean energy to digitalization, you name it, our offer will be transparent and values-driven. With Europe, what you see is what you get. And let me focus on specifically two points. First, on climate action. And here, let me take energy. Energy demand, for example, in India has doubled since 2000. And this is good news because it means better living condition for millions of people. Over the next 20 years, India will need an additional energy capacity that is equal to the entire European energy consumption. Additional. So the question is, will this energy be clean? Or will it poison our air that we breathe? Will the energy be renewable and homegrown? Or will it increase our dependency and allow for blackmail in the future? I was very glad, Prime Minister, to hear that you declared that India will be energy independent before it celebrates its 100th birthday of the country's independence in 2047. So the choices made today are crucial, not just for this great nation, but for the whole world. Global Gateway could bring, for example, to India and Bangladesh more hydropower produced in Nepal and Bhutan. It could build clean hydrogen infrastructure to power up your heavy industries. Just yesterday, I visited the headquarters of the International Solar Alliance. This is a great partnership launched by Prime Minister Modi and now bringing together 86 countries. So it's innovation at the service of people because the International Service Alliance will benefit most the least developed countries and the small island developing states. And given the geopolitical and climate challenges we face, the business case today for solar is stronger than ever. So we should massively scale it up also through Global Gateway for the benefit of our common prosperity and the planet we all share. We also can help the climate when saving energy. I know this sounds obvious, 
But in a country the size of India, the sum of many small individual decisions can have a tremendous overall impact in the end. Just think of this example. As prices drop dramatically, in recent years, millions of Indians switched from using traditional old light bulbs to modern LED lighting technology. This resulted in annual energy savings of 30 terawatt hours. This is roughly enough to power 28 million average Indian households for a year just by saving, or for the whole of Denmark just through saving energy. So there's really big time potential in energy efficiency and energy savings. We also need to strengthen our cooperation in the digital field. This is my second point. Because cutting edge technology is at the heart of our future cooperation. And Asia is a powerhouse when it comes to new technologies from artificial intelligence to quantum computing. Our cooperation is about more than investment and infrastructure. It is about talent and technology based on fundamental values, on standards, for example. Today, India and the European Union both recognize that we are better off when we develop global standards for new technologies such as 5G instead of seeking separate national solutions. And we share many of the same values when it comes to the digital world. We share the idea that privacy should be guaranteed online as well as offline. And that technology, sh technology should enhance individual freedom, not the state's ability to control us. Think about data protection. European companies outsource many of their IT processes to Indian companies. Europe generates almost one-third of the revenues for the Indian business process outsourcing sector. And with equivalent rules, we could unlock even greater data flows between our regions with immense benefits for the companies in our respective regions. As I said earlier, for the European Union, the partnership with this region is one of our most important relationships for the coming decade. And strengthening this partnership is a priority for the European Union. Our strategic cooperation should take place at the nexus of trade, trusted technology, and security, notably in, the res in respect of challenges posed by rival governance models. And therefore, I am very pleased that today Prime Minister Modi and I have agreed to establish an EU-India Trade and Technology Council to tackle key trade, economic, and technological challenges. And as like-minded partners, the European Union and India will be working on several tracks. We have launched negotiations on a free trade agreement, as well as uh, on investment protection and geographical indications. 
For Europe, this is a strategic investment in our partnership with India. The European Union is India's third most important trade partner, but we can do so much more. Our trade is far below our potential, both for Indian and European goods and services. So this deal will bring new technologies, new investment, an unprecedented integration into shared value chains. We are the two largest democracies in the world. And together, we have a lot to give to the benefit for the benefit of the people. Ladies and gentlemen, we are living indeed in a terra nova, as the title of this year's Raisina Dialogue suggests. We all have to choose whether we want a terra nova to be wild, dangerous, and an unlivable place, or a better home for all humankind. I am convinced that democracies will have a crucial role to play in defining the world of tomorrow. I want Europe to be a partner for Asia in shaping this new world, a world of independent yet interconnected countries working together for a more prosperous and peaceful world, working together for the benefit of humankind. Thank you very much for your attention. In many ways, um, she is today the, the go-to person uh, someone who the world is looking up to for leading us out of the troubled times you live in. Welcome to the Raisina Dialogue, President Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. President, India in the last few years uh, in some ways has um, already made up its mind on um, its future with the EU as a partner. And, and you know, you just made a big announcement outside on the uh, on the technology trade deal, which you, I rightly said, is about economy, about security, about individuals. Um, my question to you would be that, do you believe this is the time for us to be ambitious uh, as partners? You see India has a new energy uh, in terms of engaging with Australia on a trade uh, conversation, with the UAE on FTA. Um, can EU and India finally do that? Can we move towards a concrete agreement? and? How will that benefit the two of us? Yes. Oh, yes, we should be ambitious. And I'm deeply convinced that we will move to a free trade agreement, an investment agreement, and geographical indications. And why that? So first of all, if I look uh, at our two uh, regions, we have so much in common. We are vibrant democracies. We are large economies. We share the same values. And it is very interesting to see if you look at these large economies, let me give you some figures. Um, the European Union is 20% of the global GDP. Mm -hmm. India is the third largest economy. But if we look at the trade between the two of us, it's small. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, India towards Europe, it's only 2% of the overall European trade. And vice versa, Europe towards India, it's only 11% of the mm -hmm. overall Indian trade. 
There's a huge potential that is untapped, and therefore it is time to work together on that. My second uh, reason for that is we've learned our lesson in the pandemic with the interruption of supply chains, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden we all understood dependencies and difficult supply chains. So we want to establish resilient supply chains with a trusted partner, and here one of our most important partners will be India. President von der Leyen, it's interesting you say that. Uh, many of us, in the, at least in the academic community, see this as uh, one of the most important two years of uh, global history, at least in the last hundred years. You as a leader of EU, as a global statesman, how would you rate the performance of the world, of world leaders, of the world institutions during the last two years? Uh, how have they performed? What did we do right? Where did we get it wrong? So if we look at the COVID pandemic, mm -hmm. um, first of all, what did we get right is the amazing victory of science in developing a vaccine within a year, mm -hmm. which takes normally 10 years. And it is interesting to see that all the effective and safe vaccines have been developed in free and open democracies. Mm -hmm. So freedom of science obviously plays an enormous role. Um, there's a second part where I think we had a very hard time. We were not at all prepared. So um, to, the lesson we learned uh, in the European Union, for example, is now to create a health union mm -hmm. uh, with institutions like the Americans who were better prepared with BARDA. We create HERA. And I think there's a third element that is painful. We were not able to manage from the start to have equitable access to the vaccines. And this is also not being prepared for such a pandemic. We've learned the lessons that we now heavily invest um, through Global Gateway, for example, with our African friends in Senegal, Rwanda, and South Africa, to build up manufacturing capacity for uh, vaccine production. But not only that, also, and this is very important between mm -hmm. India and the European Union, to find a solution on the TRIPS agreement mm -hmm. that is that we make sure that technology, for example, the mRNA technology, is really being transferred, for example, to Africa um, by compulsory licensing. So we had victories in science, we were not prepared in uh, facing the pandemic, and we have to learn our lessons in equitable access. What more can India and EU be doing with Africa? We have an old relationship. Uh, Europe knows the continent uh, intimately. Uh, is it time for us to actually be now working with other geographies, uh, offering together uh, new models of growth, governance, sustainable development, mm. green transitions? Or are we only going to continue to resist offerings of others, criticize them without giving an alternative? It is our, in our own interest um, to engage with Africa and what we are doing already. And let me take the, um, the, the example of the vaccines. India is the pharmacy of the world. We have a long-standing tradition. And here it was thanks also to the impulse of India together with South Africa in the WTO that we now have the compromise mm -hmm. that is a good one on the TRIPS agreement. The principle is that, indeed, we engage 
through financing, that is our global gateway, but also through knowledge transfer. Mm -hmm. And there you have a long tradition. So in the vaccine element or the pharmaceutical uh, sector, there is a big role for India. And yes, the second big role for India is shared with the European Union, an investment in uh, cl fighting climate change mm -hmm. with innovation and technologies in Africa. Africa has an abundance of natural resources, sun, wind, uh, geothermal, hydropower. If we use that, for example, also to bring technologies to Africa to produce green hydrogen, this is a complete new story for the global south. So this was the, the, the part that dealt with some of the pressing geoeconomic questions of our time. Let me move to the tougher part now. Uh, the Ukraine conflict, you mentioned it in your address, and I think you were quite uh, forthright in how you assess the situation. But it does represent for all of us, uh, you could be anywhere in the world, but it does rep uh, represent a tectonic moment in global politics. Uh, Europe has now an eastern front that is unlikely to be stable for a while. Uh, you know, uh, we mentioned the 20th century revisited. Uh, it is going to consume a lot of political capital in Brussels, in other capitals, also economic uh, uh, investments will be required uh, in this particular situation. Will there be enough room in the strategic space in your part of the world for Ukraine as well as the Indo-Pacific? Or will the Indo-Pacific necessarily have to wait? I am deeply convinced there is uh, not only enough room, but also the will. Um, not only to share attention to the very important topic of Ukraine, but also the Indo-Pacific. Because what are we doing um, in Ukraine? We support Ukraine for core values that we are defending. For example, uh, the in territorial integrity and the sovereignty of a country. Its um, ability to decide what it wants to do in future. Um, we are defending that borders cannot be redrawn by force. Mm -hmm. The respect for the sovereignty of a country. And these are all topics that are also important for the Indo-Pacific, mm -hmm. to be free and open, to be connected, to be resilient, to be a safe place. So the principles we defend, basically principles of the international rules-based order and the UN Charter, the principles we defend, are also vital principles uh, for the Indo-Pacific region. And let me give you another very economic argument. 40% of the European Union's trade is mm. going through the South China Sea. So besides the political and um, uh, diplomatic uh, principles that we are defending there, it's also an economic question. So let me... With theme. Uh, on Russia, Europe and the EU have shown a, a resolve, a, a uh, some steel that many of us wanted Europe to be exhibiting. We all used to uh, uh, cheer for Europe to be more political, more strategic, be a more uh, 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 you know uh, forceful actor in 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 de determining solutions that are fair. Uh, you've done that. You've done all of that in, in the last few months. The question is that why should we why should we, sitting in this part of the world, uh, believe that this European determination and cohesion is sustainable? Uh, for example, will uh, an egregious 
Chinese expansionism in this part of the world um, in many ways uh, catalyze this kind of a European response or is geography the biggest determinant? Put simply, is the European determination for values a European affair or are we going to see a same vocal determined and, and political Europe emerge even in distant conflicts caused by different actors, not necessarily Russia? Mm. So first of all, um, of course, it concerns deeply Europe and Europe's security because we have seen a brutal invasion from Russia in Ukraine. And I have witnessed with my own eyes by traveling to Kiev and Butcha the cruel scars and wounds that Russia uh, committed to innocent civilians in uh, Butcha. But there's more than a European cause, because the unity that you see is shared by many other countries. Mm -hmm. We have more than 40 countries that are applying the sanctions. Mm -hmm. Our answer to this brutal military invasion, the economic and financial an uh, sanctions. So it's a broader unity that is telling very clearly uh, Russia, don't do this. If there is a conflict, it has to be solved at the negotiation table and not on the battlefield. And um, this shows that it is a wider topic than uh, only a regional topic. It's a basic principle, a basic question of defending our principled rules and uh, the international order. And therefore, uh, I think this unity will have a lasting effect. It is for us a defining moment whether the democracy with its rules will prevail, or whether autocrats can dominate by the right of might. We want the rules-based order. We want respect for the international rules-based order. And therefore, it is so vital not only for Europe, but all our friends and allies who support us, that this war will be a strategic failure for Russia and that uh, Ukraine uh, will have its right to be an independent sovereign country. Madam President, um, you mentioned technology a few times in the main speech you made today. Some of us are concerned that we have literally two dominant models in the world today. One is uh, the Silicon Valley model, where you have uh, uh, boardrooms deciding the future of our world. Unaccountable boardrooms many times, but certainly innovative boardrooms nonetheless. The other model is the party headquarters in Beijing deciding the future of our te technology, of, of how it evolves, how we engage with it. Two big models. Uh, the GDPR, many would argue, was a muscular European proposition. And by the way, I think many countries around the world have, are following the GDPR plus minus model. Most of them have a variant of GDPR in their, in their own uh, arrangements now, including uh, what we are currently working on as mm -hmm. a data policy uh, in India. Do you believe that as normative powers, uh, Europe and India, can actually moderate both these extremes, from unaccountable boardrooms to party headquarters, uh, which are completely unaccountable? Is it time for us to partner to build a new regulatory offering for the world? Absolutely. And this is the reason why uh, Prime Minister Modi and I agreed on the Trade and Technology Council. Um, because we have a different approach this is a human-centric approach. We believe deeply that data, your data, the privacy of your data, 
should be owned by you and not by a company um, and certainly not by a government or a state that is controlling you. You have the right to decide on what happens with your data. And this human-centric approach that puts the individual human being in the center of our philosophy, this is something we share. Mm -hmm. um, and therefore, it is so important that we develop these rules that are, of course, rules we know in the analog offline world, mm -hmm. that we develop this regulation and these rules in the digital world. And two big democracies with 1.8 billion people like India and the European Union together, have of course an enormous influence because it's a big market. And therefore, if we develop together common rules on our markets, it will shape the world because it will set standards. Madam President, thank you so much for inaugurating the Raisina Dialogue and joining us at this fireside. Uh, as a final question, how was your trip to India and do we see you back again soon? The trip was fantastic. And there was only one downside. It was too short. And therefore, I have to come back. And I would love to come back. So we'll hold you to that. And thank you so much for joining. Thank you for tuning in to Policy Pod, the ORF podcast. Please subscribe to our channel for updates on upcoming episodes.